You're listening to another episode of the Zag. Eric Rousseau here, joined by NLC Madison 2016 fellow. Josh Clemens is here. He started a business. He's got a lot of different things going on right now. Excited to hear also about his perspective on life in the Midwest. So let's get to it. All right, Josh. So when people ask you what you do for a living, what do you usually answer? Uh, I'm a digital storyteller and strategist. I help brands of all shapes and sizes find, hone, and tell their stories online. And then who are your most frequent people asking you to help them tell their story? Yeah, so I spend about half my time working in the political front, working with uh, political candidates, elected officials, um, C4s, and other groups involved in the political spectrum. Uh, and then the other half of my time is spent working with, like I said, brands of all shapes and sizes, meaning literally everything from small nonprofits and solopreneurs or you know, gypsy swing jazz bands. I have a client that's a 30-year jazz band up to um, very large companies doing much bigger things and looking for ways to sort of think about social differently. So when people come so to it's you, a pretty do, wide spectrum. yeah, it sounds like it. So when people come to you, do they have ideas pretty fleshed out, or they're coming with a blank slate and they want you to fill it in? What's the most frequent way that things come together? Sure. So I do a lot of different things uh, in the social media front. Um, a lot of what I do is training and consulting. So I often have people come to me either they know that they don't know what they need to know, uh, and they come to me to try and figure it out, or they know what they do need to know, and they want to work with me to like get to the next step. I do audits of people's social media campaigns. Um, I do a lot of Facebook advertising. Um, I help people think about social in a different way. So a lot of times it's people come to me for help with social media, um, and sometimes they know exactly what they need, but just as often, uh, they come to me, you know, knowing what their end goal is. And then I help them figure out this, the path that forward. So when you do the audits of social media, what is the one or two things that really drive you nuts when you're like, Oh, okay. I'm going to, I see this all the time. We're gonna have to change it, but no matter how much, uh, you keep seeing it, it doesn't seem to go away. So I think the biggest mistake people make with social is approaching it without thinking about who their audience is, but thinking, um, so they're ignoring their story. So like the other day I did an audit of a uh, LinkedIn campaign. I actually had two of these this week where it was a similar situation or in the last week or two, where it was a similar situation. I was looking at somebody's uh, LinkedIn account and their bio was essentially a resume, but they're not trying to find a job. They're trying to sell something to a customer or connect with an audience. And they're telling me how they can do all these things that have no relevance to their audience. And I think I see things like that a lot. People forgetting that social media is a great place to tell a story and to connect with people. The other big thing is that they spend most uh, too many brands, in my experience, spend too much of their time trying to sell a product. Uh, I'm of the opinion that social media is a terrible place to sell anything, but a great place to build your brand and build relationships, which can ultimately lead to sales. Uh, and that can apply to the political front as well. You know, if you think about um, if you go to social media and all you do is ask for money, you're probably not going to raise very much money. But if you show the great work that your campaign is doing and talk about your amazing team and talk about the values that got you into the race, well, suddenly people are asking you how they can get involved instead of you saying, you know, please kick in $3. We need it to keep moving forward. Makes sense. And when you talk about building a brand, what's the most authentic way to do it? Because I think even if you take advice on building a brand or like you, or if someone is very bought into what you just said, there can still feel at times a contrived nature to the brand building. Like we're checking the boxes of posting the team or here's some cute pictures or this or that. So how do you make it feel authentic? 
Yeah, for sure. So I think one of my favorite examples I use, I went into a store and I bought a dresser or no, I bought a bookshelf and I love the bookshelf. I was very happy with it. And I I felt a immediate connection because the store had the bookshelf I was looking for. I noticed that they didn't have their social media, um, uh, campaign, you know, information around, like it, it didn't say where they were on social. So I asked them, Oh, are you on social? They told me they were, that led to me doing a training with them. And what I helped them realize was that despite the fact that I'm a fan of their store, I had no interest in buying anything else from them for maybe a year or two, but how are you going to maintain a relationship with me when I don't care about what you're selling right now? And what they were doing at that time was simply posting on social media, pictures of all the new products in the store. But, you know, I had just bought what I needed. I was no longer furniture shopping. So they had to find a way to, instead of try to sell me a product, maintain a relationship with me. So I helped them understand that their product was furniture, but their brand was a comfortable living environment. And so finding an article on the New York Times or BuzzFeed about like the top 10 ways to, you know, get more light in your home is totally within their brand story. And it's completely an authentic way because 99% of the people that love their brand are not currently shopping for furniture. What they needed to do was maintain a relationship with me so that when I was again looking for furniture, they would be the first place I went. And so how do you stay top of mind? You're doing it by being helpful all the time so that when I actually need you, I think of you positively. And then what's your favorite platform right now? Well, I use Facebook probably more than any other professionally, but my uh, professionally, but personally, I I love Twitter. I'm a big, big Twitter fan. And when you think about maybe the next twelve months or even the next two three years, do you see a platform rising above that sort of captures all these different needs? Right? You think of LinkedIn; people probably go for work, or Twitter might just be for for news or some brand things. Instagram, maybe more personal. Do you see one sort of trying to? consolidate all into one place and overtaking all of them, or you'll always have enough differentiation between the ones that exist? You know, I often joke that Facebook not, never saw a platform it didn't want to create. <laughs> uh, uh, so it either subsumes them uh, or it buys them out. Instagram, they were able to purchase. Twitter, they couldn't. So what they did instead, they took the concept of hashtags, of verification. They took these ideas from, of trending topics. They took these ideas. Obviously, they couldn't buy Snapchat, so they created stories. And I think Facebook is very good at figuring out the parts of platforms that are exciting and bringing them into their platform. They also have a lot of sort of swings and misses. Uh, we regularly see that. But we see them uh, using um, Workplace to try to be Slack and Marketplace to try to be uh, Craigslist and Watch to try to be um, YouTube. You know, we really see Facebook trying to be everything to everyone. Uh, and it's an interesting dilemma because it sort of keeps anybody who gets to a certain level knows that if Facebook, if they're not willing to sell to Facebook, Facebook's going to replicate them. And I think that it's an interesting dilemma that's going on right now. And we'll see sort of where the next couple years have us. Um, we saw a momentary blip in the Facebook confidence, uh, you know, with the whole delete Facebook campaign, but then it actually turned out more users joined Facebook during the period than left. So Facebook's at no danger of going anywhere short of, uh, you know, some intense governmental regulation, which I don't see coming, uh, you know. Uh, when senators are asking how they make money during their hearing, it's clear that the Senate is not going to be the ones to solve the problems that uh, Facebook has afflicted us with. I'll also say I think Facebook and social media in general, for all the sort of negativity of like the bad things that they've brought to the world, there's a lot of amazing things they've brought to the world that could never have happened 
uh, without social. And I think it's important to sort of remember that there's great, great, there's great greatness in social. Um, but let's try to all focus on the, the negativity. And, you know, I always tell people we're all responsible for the spread of fake news. Uh, you know, if you see something in your feed that doesn't look right, you know, feel free to do a quick Google check. My guess is Snopes has called them out or PolitiFact has called them out. And it's okay to respond respectfully and say, um, just, you know, you're sharing something fake. Um, you know, so I, I think that there's positivity. Um, I love Twitter because it's the most public conversation of all the platforms. Um, Facebook, I would say, is a million private conversations. Twitter is one giant public conversation. And I think that there's a power there that really doesn't exist on any other platform. And it's so the reason why Twitter exists, despite Facebook siphoning off its you know best assets, is because at the end of the day, Facebook cannot reproduce the primary thing which Twitter does, which is a worldwide conversation because Facebook has privacy settings. Twitter does not. Um, so the brands that really have been able to, or the platforms that have really been able to like stick around and punch through have been the ones that their core business model could not be replicated as directly. Um, Snapchat as well for quite some time had found a way that Facebook couldn't replicate. And then Facebook went and found stories and, you know, really have given Snapchat or Snapchat's been their own worst enemy. Facebook's been a close second. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask. I live about 10, 15 minutes from the Snapchat headquarters. Do you think they're going to be around in five years? Um, I would not put money on that one way or the other. Um, we'll see. I, I think Snapchat is in a real, um, a real transitionary period, which is a dangerous place to be at their current situation. Uh, just this week, they announced that they're going to go back to their old model, uh, but they're changing their old model, um, the, de- the design. Uh, so people were upset when they switched it. They ignored the people for a long time, which is always a dangerous thing to do. And now suddenly they're going to go back to the old design, but not exactly. But, you know, the damage has been done. Um, And I think we've seen, you know, live by the influencer, die by the influencer. Snapchat in part was popular because there were a lot of people that loved Snapchat that had huge followings. And a lot of those people felt burned. Um, And so we've seen a lot of uh, drop off. I can tell you, I live in Madison, Wisconsin, and the Snapchat guy I know in town, like, you know, a, a lot of people would say I'm the Twitter guy. There's a Snapchat guy in town. He doesn't use Snapchat anymore. He uses Instagram instead of Snapchat. Um, how they get that guy back, I don't know. But if they can't, I don't think they'll be around in five years. My guess is they'll find a way to pivot and stick around. And I think they will get that guy back. It's just a question of how they do it. Yeah. So you watching. Yeah. And speaking of sticking around, we'll be right back after the short break. One of the groups that you mentioned that you work with is politicians and campaigns. Who do you feel like has the the most authentic or the most watchable, listenable uh, social media presence in the political world? Uh, So I'm a huge John Dingle fan. Uh, Do you know John Dingle? Yeah, from uh, Michigan, yeah? Michigan, yeah. He's retired now. Uh, Good, good, good man. He's in his 90s. Um, He has long been one of my favorite Twitter accounts. I always assumed it was a staffer doing it for him because he's in his 90s. But he's retired now and he hasn't missed a beat. And he tweets at all hours of the day. And I think it's genuinely him. And he is just uh, acerbic wit, really uh, timely, and just some experience that I think very few people could match. Ted Lou is another Twitter account that I really appreciate. I think that he's doing uh, some great work, really sort of um, holding that um, the Democratic line on Twitter in a way that I think a lot more elected officials could sort of own. Um, Chris Murphy's doing some really good stuff, especially on gun control. Um, so I, I, I follow a lot of political uh, email lists and social accounts. Those are a couple of my favorites. 
So I think one of the common themes amongst the people you just mentioned was the, the, the Twitter feeds or the social media presence sounds like people talking for real and it's not focus group to death. There's not consultants speak to death. How do you convince politicos to sort of follow that tact when sometimes they're just so cautious or an aide's doing it, or it's only just a regurgitation of press releases? How do you actually get someone to speak their voice? So this is something I tell every elected official or politician I work with, and it became such a powerful way for me to think about how they should be thinking about it that I now talk to brands like this too, meaning businesses and small uh, or nonprofits. Um, I recommend to anyone doing social media that they picture a specific individual um, at the other end of their content. So if they're an elected official or a politician, they should be thinking about a specific constituent and they should write the content with that constituent in mind. And I always say... If you're about to tweet out a press release, you ask yourself honestly, is that woman that you met yesterday on the doors going to read your press release? The answer is always going to be no. Does that mean that what you put in the press release is irrelevant? Of course not. Take that press release and tell me why it's relevant to the user. Tell him, tell me why it's relevant to your audience. Like Turn it into a story. Turn it into something that's digestible for the common person who's not going to be following the intricacies of policy. And that's how you turn your press release into social media content. And I think all three of those people that I just mentioned, to the best of my understanding, run their own accounts. Chris Murphy, from my understanding, Senator Murphy from Connecticut, uh, writes his own emails. I've heard people talk about, obviously he has an editing team and a team that puts them together, but my understanding is he's writing the first draft. For an email program, my guess is that's very rare, but I think the best Twitter accounts on social when it comes to um, elected officials are people that are either running them themselves or really giving authority to their staff to understand the goals and not to play it too safe. Because at the end of the day, you have to play it safe somewhat, but if you're playing it too safe on social, you're not really a part of the conversation. So then for someone that has so much experience in this, what is your take on why Donald Trump is so effective with Twitter? Well, he, he definitely uh, puts it all out there. Uh, I think that, um, I think Donald Trump – it's a hard question to answer um, because I think in a lot of ways Donald Trump uh, is, you know, is getting to our lowest common denominator. You know, he, his tweets are filled with things that I think are inappropriate. I would never sign off on as a digital director. Uh, you know, he's attacking individuals. He's attacking groups of people. He's doing things that I think break every rule and they're working. But you could argue – a lot of Twitter users do that too. I'd like to see a Twitter that rises above that kind of vitriol and instead gets to, I am never going to be the person that starts throwing bombs on Twitter and being disrespectful. If you're disrespectful to an account that I'm working on, I will find a way to respond respectfully or I'll, you know, sometimes you need to stop feeding the trolls and move on. Um, but I think that he, he is a real person on Twitter and that is clear as day. And that definitely resonated. Um, you know, they say that um, in every generation, the politician who best understands the media of their time goes on to win the presidency. Uh, JFK understood television. F Before him, FDR understood radio. Barack Obama understood digital organizing. But Twitter, that is Donald Trump's game. He lives there. He's been using it for years. Um, and, you know, you, you can't look at Donald Trump's Twitter and not think it's authentic, uh, even if you find it abhorrent. Does that mean The Rock's going to be president in 2020 based on his Instagram presence? Well, I would choose The Rock over Donald Trump. <laughs> this is true. Uh, he seems like a nicer guy. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. You know, 2020, my hope is we have a lot of great candidates uh, on the Democratic side, uh, you know, that really 
re-articulate what the vision for the party should be in the world of Donald Trump. My fear is that we've opened up the floodgates of, oh, this is an easy job. Anyone can do it. I think Donald Trump has shown both sides of this is an easy job. Anyone can do it. He got the job so anyone could do it. It's not an easy job. And I would like to see somebody in there uh, with the sort of who takes um, who ta- who takes it as seriously as the job should be taken. So obviously, um, I'm not against a celebrity per se. I don't think that's a negative word per se. Uh, but I certainly would like to see somebody who has, um, you know, has an understanding of how policy can affect people. So, you know, I'm not all in for Team Oprah, but I think Oprah Winfrey has demonstrated she has um, the empathy it would, might take to be president. The Rock, maybe, too. Uh, Kanye West, I think he has proven that he does not have the empathy to be president. Um, so, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. And then last question for you. You know, we're out here in Los Angeles, the coastal elites over here in our bubbles. What should we... <laughs> try to understand or maybe what can you shed light on about living in a place like Madison and, and Wisconsin in general, as we look ahead to the midterms in 2020, what should we try to understand about a non progressive blues liberal coastal state? Sure. So when I moved to Wisconsin, it was a purple state leaning blue. It is today a quite bright red state. Um, but I do think that so goes Wisconsin. So goes the nation. Uh, I think that not just Wisconsin, but I think there are a couple states in our sort of, um, you know, the hardworking American, like a lot of them come from Wisconsin. A lot of them also come from California. I lived in California and there were plenty of hardworking people. So it's not a question of one being harder working, but I do think that that concept of a swing voter, um, you know, I think that Wisconsin is full of swing voters, which is why we've seen Tammy Baldwin, Barack Obama, and Scott Walker all win elections at the same time, essentially, in Wisconsin. I think that right now we have a gerrymandering case uh, before the Supreme Court that could literally change the entire uh, makeup of the Congress for the nation, um, depending on how uh, broad the Supreme Court chooses to rule. Uh, we also have a um, have had three recent uh, victories for the progressive side over the conservative side um, in the last six months. Um, we had a special election. We had the state treasurer's race. And we had a Supreme Court race uh, locally that all sort of flipped or went unexpectedly heavily uh, blue over red. Uh, we have another special election here in Wisconsin. Ann Groves Lloyd uh, is running in the AD42. You should definitely check her out. She's been endorsed by the Daily Coast. Um, and she's doing some great stuff. Uh, she's a fifth generation um, community member of uh, Lodi. And... Um, I think that November is going to see uh, a very different Wisconsin than we've had for the last couple of years, but you know we'll see. Uh, the state is very heavily gerrymandered in one direction, um, and you know it might be an insurmountable situation. But I do think that um, you know Wisconsin is certainly grappling with uh, it's a it's a great microcosm of the nation. Yeah, give us some plugs on how we can find you if people want to employ your digital storytelling and consulting. Prowess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you. So uh, you can go to my website, joshclemens.com. That's K-L-E-M-O-N-S.com. Or connect with me on Facebook or Twitter. I'm Reverbal Communications. That's Reverb, A-L, Reverbal Communications uh, on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also on Instagram at jlemonsk. And I, uh, I'd love to connect with you. I always respond to questions and comments and love to engage online. Thanks for joining us and thanks for everyone who's listened to this episode of The Zag. More episodes coming later this week. You can find all past ones in the iTunes store, Google Play stores, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, you name it, we're there. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you soon.